Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're going to bring the last two episodes together. We talked about crisis, we talked about legitimacy, now we're going to talk about crises of legitimacy. And we're going to bring them together with a little bit of help from Robert Gooden and Albert Hirschman. They're going to be our anchor theorists for today. And the key things that we're going to bring together in the crisis episode, we talked about crises as maybe being longer term, longer lasting having more temporal breaks, pauses, having a kind of trajectory rather than just being isolated moments of success or failure. And in the legitimacy episode, we talked about legitimacy as an internal concept, which is contextually relative to the particular people in the area. Just because we might think morally that a state is right or wrong, that doesn't mean that the people in that state recognize that state is right or wrong. Legitimacy is about whether the state is actually recognized as acceptable rather than whether it is in some kind of objective or moral sense. And legitimacy has levels. We can reject a whole regime We can reject a set of institutions. We can reject a set of policies or a government, or we could be content with everything in a kind of utopian scenario, right? Kind of three, four different stages of legitimacy, ranging from a completely utopian stage to a stage where the government is is in question, but the institutions are not, to a stage where we are questioning our institutions, but we're still committed to the regime type. We like democracy, but we don't like how our democracy works. We want it to be more democratic or pure in some way, and that top stage where the regime itself is called into question. And the way I kind of want to put these together is if you are imagining, I think very often when we think about crises of legitimation, we think about situations where it's acute, where there's a kind of final moment where the regime is accepted or rejected. So it's A, a kind of episodic, immediate existential moment in terms of how the crisis is conceptualized. And B, the legitimation issue is with the regime type, that the whole regime is in question all at once. So it's this big cathartic moment where the regime will either survive or it won't. That's the way Reinhard Koselleck frames it when he talks about this moral dualism opening up between the morality of the people and the morality of the state. And there has to be some kind of big moment where either there's realignment or somebody crushes somebody. Right? I want to get away from that conception because I think largely these days, democracy as a regime type is something everybody agrees on in the West. And the question is, what kind of state, what kind of institutional schema is an appropriate reflection of democratic principles, democratic values. Our legitimation crises tend to get stuck on that third level where we are frustrated with our institutions. We think our institutions are dysfunctional, but we want to purify them to get a purer or better version of the same regime type that we already have, rather than moving away from that regime type to some alternative like, say, the Chinese model or communism or fascism or monarchism or some other such thing. 
So that's what I, I want to do. And in keeping with that, I think that when we are in this period of institutional contestation, it's going to be a long period because we're going to spend a lot of time trying to find the right kinds of institutional reforms to make our system work better. It's not going to be a moment where either the state collapses or doesn't collapse. There's going to be a lot of different attempts to fix the institutions. There are going to be a lot of different institutional proposals out there, lots of different ideas about what it is that's wrong with the institutions. And I think we can kind of separate some of the different accounts of what might be wrong with institutions into these boxes of dynamism versus credibility. Sometimes we feel that our institutions aren't dynamic, that they don't change enough, that we're not able to get enough to change. And other times we think our institutions aren't credible, that they're not reliable, that we can't trust them to stick to the decisions that they've taken. And of course, dynamism and credibility pull apart against each other a bit, because to be able to make change rapidly is also to be able to change your mind, right? And then within the box of dynamism, I think there's also some variety in, in different types of dynamism. Sometimes we have the ability to change policy very easily, but we can't change our government very easily. And other times we can change the government very easily, but we can't change policy very easily. And if you think about it, those two things necessarily are going to pull against each other. Because if a government can easily change policy without worrying about consequences, then that government is difficult to remove. And if we can easily change the government, if we don't like what the government is doing, then that limits the government's ability to try risky policy reforms that might result in our rejecting it, right? So dynamism can be at the level of government or it can be at the level of policy. And dynamism in general will pull against credibility. Those are a few of the different institutional advantages that people are often looking for when they're thinking about what it is that doesn't work about their democracy. There are, of course, other things. Sometimes we think our democracy doesn't live up to our conception of equality or fairness. We think that it doesn't give us enough opportunities to contribute to political discourse, or we don't think that it distributes enough resources to us to give us a a fair shot at life. Uh, And that's, to some degree, I think we discussed this last time, the difference between legitimation demands that are output-oriented to do with what you are materially getting from the state and input-oriented to do with whether you have a voice or you're consulted or you feel part of the decision, right? So, Anytime we have this period where people are dissatisfied with institutions, there's going to be a prolonged crisis where there's going to be a lot of agonism over what is wrong. Some people are going to say that it's that the institutions aren't dynamic enough. Some are going to say that they're not credible enough. Some are going to say we don't have enough policy dynamism. Some will say we don't have enough governmental dynamism. Some will say it's a question of equality or fairness. There are a lot of different potential ways in which you can frame this. And different parts of the state, different component institutions can frame each other as the problem because they know that the legitimation crisis is not a crisis for the regime. So if you have a president, the president might accuse the Congress, the legislature, of being the problem, being the reason why we can't get policy that we want or that we don't have a system that feels democratic or representative to us. And conversely, the legislature can do the same thing back at the president. And they're free to do this and different political parties are free to do this. 
because everybody is confident that the regime type itself is strong and that people remain committed to democracy. So the executive can try to use the legitimation crisis to say that actually what would purify the democracy is to give the executive more room to move. And the legislature can say, actually, what would improve the crisis is to give the legislature more room to move. And the same can happen regionally. Governors might try to use a crisis to say that states need more autonomy. And the central government might use a crisis to say that actually there needs to be more centralization. And the thing is that all of these different interests, all of these different institutions will construct their own narratives of why it is that we're dissatisfied with the particular configuration of democratic institutions that we have. They'll all come up with their own stories, and the stories will conflict with each other in all sorts of ways, and everybody is going to lie and mislead and write stories, write legitimation stories that are tricky because everyone has a stake in the crisis being resolved in a way which increases the power of their institution or increases their flexibility, or makes it harder to remove them, right? So when there is this kind of legitimation crisis, which is not a straightforward existential challenge to the regime, it can go on a very long time and it can be really messy because the fact that it isn't going to the regime level is freeing up all of the interest groups in society to try to exploit the crisis for their own gain. And so you get a very mixed narrative about what's wrong. And to give you some examples, you know, more recently, you see some people saying that uh, the problem with our, our state is that President Trump doesn't have enough room to maneuver. And you have other people saying that the problem is that President Trump is corrupting the democratic process by suppressing voter turnout. You see some people saying the problem is that there's too much money from special interest groups. You see some people saying that the problem is the filibuster or the problem is judicial review or the problem is that the court needs to be packed with justices who are more amenable to contemporary mores. You've got people saying the problem is the Federal Reserve. You've got people saying that the problem is that we don't have enough technocrats that say the European Union is too weak. You've got other people saying that the problem is that the European Union is too strong. You've got people saying that the issue is that Scotland needs independence and other people saying that the issue is that individual European states have too much autonomy from the European Union. There are loads and loads and loads of different ways to pitch what's wrong with our institutions and to try to bend this kind of legitimacy crisis to benefit any given institution or any given actor. And so this means that in practice, voters have no idea what the problem is. They know that the institutions are dysfunctional. They can feel that it's not right. They know that they want to change the institutions in some way to make them more functional, but they're not sure what the right move is. So to move over to Gooden and Hirschman, why Gooden and Hirschman? Well, I think if we think about legitimacy as a kind of expectations gap, right, there are certain demands, certain expectations that you have for the state, and then there's what you're getting from the state, what the state is actually offering. And there's a gap between those things. And that gap is a source of resentment, the feeling that you're not getting what you were promised, you're not getting what you are owed by the state, produces resentment in the state. And that resentment begins, say, at the level of policy, at the level of government, and then it moves up to the level of institutions. 
And in theory, it might move up to the level of regime. But we seem to be so confident in democracy that we're always willing to excuse democracy. We're always willing to say, well, it's not democracy's fault. It's that we don't have the right kinds of institutions to get real democracy. Because we have so much confidence in democracy as a regime type, we tend to get stuck in that institutional step. And so the question is, well, then how would you close an expectations gap? How would you bring an end to this kind of period of legitimacy crisis? That's what I really want to focus on in today's episode. How do you resolve something like this? And I think that there are basically three paths. One is what I call solving. And solving is when the state takes some kind of action to bring conditions into alignment with expectations. Another is settling, where the state is able to modify our expectations to bring them in alignment with the conditions. And a third is sinking. Sinking is when neither solving nor settling obtains, where the state is in a perverse incentive schema, which causes it to inflame the resentment rather than get rid of it. Right? So, in terms of how Hirschman and Gooden fit into this, Hirschman in the 70s wrote a book, uh, Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, about how different people, different groups of people problem solve. So for Hirschman, he's very focused on exit and voice, right? So exit is if you don't like the way an institution works, you stop participating in it, you leave, right? So this could be in a consumer market, you might stop buying something if you don't like the product or you don't like the store, you could just quit buying it. That would be a form of exit. Refusing to vote for a political party, withdrawing support for a politician, that would be a form of exit. Leaving an organization, leaving a a club, a society, uh, that would be a form of exit. Emigrating, moving out of the country, moving your capital, your money out of the country, uh, those could be forms of exit too. Rebelling against the state, trying to overthrow it, that would be a form of exit. Voice means trying to participate in the institution to get the institution to respond to you. So instead of quitting or leaving, you try to talk, you try to influence the institution from within. So instead of going and buying a different product, maybe you write a letter to the Better Business Bureau, or you start a social media campaign to try to change the behavior of the firm. Maybe instead of voting for a different political party, you agitate to change the rules by which people in the party are selected, or you speak up in leadership contests or primary contests to try to get them to go the way that you'd like them to go. Maybe instead of capital flight, you hire lobbyists or you donate a lot of money to campaigns. Right? Instead of moving your money out of the country, maybe you try to influence the domestic politics. Maybe instead of rebelling against the state, you get involved in the political process in some way. Right? To do voice, you have to have some level of confidence in the institutions you're participating in, some level of confidence that you can make a difference in them. Right? And Hirschman's third concept in that title, loyalty, refers to how much we believe in our institutions. If we're very loyal to our institutions, then we'll use a lot more voice before we resort to threatening to exit and then exiting. 
will stay in the voice stage for much longer. And so what I kind of want to suggest to you is that we are now very loyal to democracy as a regime type. We're very, very loyal to it. And that means we tend to want to go through a very prolonged period of using voice and trying to change our institutions from within rather than exiting. And that means that we are staying in this kind of problem-solving strategy where we're trying to find a way to change the institutions, to change the way that the state works, to align it with what we expect. So it's a solving strategy that's built mainly around voice because we are very reluctant to exit, very reluctant to exit, right? Gooden, Robert Gooden, in his more recent book on settling, emphasizes that if you're trying to improve your life, if you're striving in some area of life, you can only do that because you have stability in other areas, because you've chosen to settle in other areas of life, right? So if you're focusing really hard on your career, you can't be focusing as much on trying to change your family situation and vice versa. If you're very focused on politics, then you can't be focused as much on the private sphere. You need a level of stability in your private life to focus on the political. And the same goes the other way. You need a certain level of political stability to be able to focus on running a business or running a family. Anytime we are striving in one area, it's because we have some level of stability in other areas. And so for good, and it's very important that we decide where to strive and where to settle and that we make good decisions about these things. Now, from the point of view of legitimacy crises, if we were to settle the crisis rather than solve it, that would be to make our peace with politics as it is. And that would mean lowering our expectations for politics, freeing up more of our energy to go into the private sphere. And one of the things that I'm sure the listener has noticed is that people, when they get into their 30s, they tend to settle, right? We often talk about people settling in their careers or in their relationships, but one of the areas where people settle is in politics. People in their 20s are often imagining that they're going to be very politically active and they're going to make a big difference. As they get older, they start to get frustrated by politics. They start to feel that effort in the political direction is not very generative. So they settle and they start looking at other areas of their life to focus on and to get satisfaction from. Usually areas of life that are more local, that are more about their immediate environment, their family their relationships, their friends, their sometimes their job. And oftentimes there's an oscillation between focusing on the job and focusing on the family, depending on which whether these two things are both potentially sources of fulfillment or maybe only one is. And one of the ways in which our society prevents us from getting too frustrated with any one of these areas not working out is by giving us somewhere else to go. We can always settle in an area in which we're frustrated and redirect our striving somewhere else. And the people who really struggle in life, they oscillate between striving fruitlessly in different areas. And they don't get anywhere in particular in any of them because when they face resistance, they can settle in that area and move their striving to a different area. And they're not able to find any particular place to, to deploy that striving where it can be effective, right? So... Oftentimes, the family becomes an escape from the career. The career becomes an escape from the family. The political is an escape from both, and both are an escape from the political. Mm. Right? So 
that would be settling. Settling would be finding a way to get us to lower expectations a little bit and accept less from politics. Mm. And a lot of people, as they get older, they settle. That's often an age-based thing, a stage of life-based thing. But it can also happen, I think, at scale as a, uh, at the societal level. And to, to bear in mind, when I, I'm going to talk a little bit this episode about, say, solvers and settlers. And I'm not, when I do that, saying that any given individual is fixed as a solver or a settler. Individuals can move in and out of these different camps very rapidly and very easily. But at any given point in society, there will be some block of people who are prioritizing trying to solve over settling in politics and another block of people who are prioritizing settling over trying to solve. And I'm talking more about the collective energies here than the specific individuals in the groups. Okay. So when a society is dominating, dominated by the solving energy, there's more solving going on than settling. And when it's dominating by, dominated by the settling energy, there's more settling going on than solving. This is not to say that any particular person is permanently in either group. And I would not try to reduce individuals down to being a solver or being a settler. We have all been solvers and settlers in lots of different areas of life at lots of different points. Mm. Right? So what about the third one, sinking? So sinking is when we are not able to get ourselves to solve or settle. And it often arises in cases where to get elected, governments will promise that they can solve. We will get our hopes up that they will actually be able to solve, and that will prevent us from lowering uh, our expectations. When they inevitably can't solve the problem, sometimes what they do actually makes the problem worse. And even if it doesn't make the problem worse, because they raised their expectation that they would solve it, there's a bigger gap between expectations and reality. And therefore, there's going to be more resentment, right? If you think about it, governments, when they're in opposition, when a political party is in opposition, when it's not in government, it has a strong incentive to say, there are a lot of problems right now that the government can't solve, but that they could be solved, that could be solved if you elected the opposition, right? So in this way, what they do is they try to create resentment. They try to say, hey, what you're getting is not what your expectations should be. You should be expecting more from the state than what you're getting. And we will deliver it if you vote for us, right? So when Bernie Sanders says, for instance, you know, Medicare for all, you should be able to expect health care from the state. You're not getting it. Vote for me. I'll give it to you. That is intensifying the gap between expectations and reality. But Medicare for all is just a policy, right? Now, if Bernie Sanders then says the reason we can't get Medicare for all is because we have a corrupt political system that is dominated by billionaires and their money, now he's making an institutional critique. And if he says, if he's able to convince you that Medicare for all shouldn't be impossible and that the only reason it's impossible is dysfunctional institutions, then you'll push for these institutional reforms. And at that point, you've moved the political conversation from that second level of resentment where you're resenting the fact that you don't have Medicare for all to that third level of resentment where you're resenting campaign finance law, voter suppression law, 
where you're resenting the way that the democratic primary system works, the DNC, the way the media works, where you're resenting all of these democratic institutions that we have for being arrayed against you in some way, right? But in both of those cases, at no point does Bernie Sanders invite you to doubt democracy. What he's saying is that he's trying to fix democracy and make it better. So you never get to the level of doubting the regime type as a whole. Of course, once you don't get what you're looking for there, either because it's impossible to implement the policy, because the political system is too sclerotic to enable the policy itself to be implemented that was promised, or because the policy backfires and doesn't work, regardless of which way it goes, once that happens, then you're going to see the elected president, the elected leader, will start to try to explain why you should actually be satisfied with the status quo, right? So even if Barack Obama hasn't delivered the hope and the change, he will start to try to argue that he has. So he'll start to bring out all these economic graphs showing you a recovery, and he'll try to argue that he did it and that this is hope and change and that you got what was promised, right? Donald Trump will switch from saying, make America great again to keep America great. And he will say, keep America great, regardless of whether he made it great again, regardless of whether it is still great. Once you're in office, you have to kind of move from solving to settling so that you can win re-election. And you have to move the mood of the country from a solving mood to a settling mood so that you can win, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, this invites the opposition to come up with a new story about how you failed to meet expectations. And it can be that you failed to meet the expectations you set for yourself, or it could be that there's some other set of things that you should have been doing that you weren't doing. And you can get locked into this legitimation spiral where multiple institutions or multiple political parties are successively delegitimating each other, and neither one is able to deliver on a satisfying package of reforms. So at no point is either side able to actually get you to believe in the institutions again. And all that the competition is doing is gradually building more and more and more resentment of institutions, more and more feeling that the institutions don't enable you to get the change that you're entitled to. And as that happens, the resentment can get more and more and more intense. So what happens as that resentment gets more intense, as the sinking continues? I think that there are broadly three things that can happen. One, of course, is that the resentment just intensifies until you get to rejection of the regime type. But for that to happen, there would need to be a proliferation of compelling regime alternatives. If you think about the 1930s, fascism and communism offered compelling at that time to some people regime alternatives to democracy that a lot of people believed in, okay? And because of that, there was some actual semblance of existential threat. Today, we don't have regime alternatives that are very credible that lots of people believe in. So we don't have that same level of existential threat. And I think that that path is unlikely, although it's the path everyone is always looking out for because it's something that we've seen before, because people recognize that from Nazi Germany. They recognize that from the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution. That's the route that everyone is always looking for, because people tend to see the past 
in the future, even when the future is very different in important ways. The next would be a legitimation shift. A legitimation shift would be a kind of perversion of your expectation, where your expectation subtly comes to mean something else. And a lot of the, uh, in the previous episode, when we were talking about legitimacy and we we're talking about whether equality means you get outputs or you get inputs, whether that means you actually get a basket of stuff or an opportunity to talk. That's a way of taking that term equality or that term fairness and subtly bending its meaning into something that's easier to satisfy, right? It's much easier to give you a feeling that you had an opportunity to talk than it is to actually give you the resources that you would need to be able to do discrete things in your life, like go to a university or get health care. So if the state is able to subtly alter the meaning of words and tell different stories, instead of lowering your expectation, it changes the expectation to something that seems superficially related, but is actually quite different. And I think right now, one of the things that's going on is there's a big effort to get us to stop talking about distributive justice, to stop talking about who gets what stuff, and to instead get us to talk about who gets to talk, who's recognized, who is the state talking to? And it becomes about the conversation rather than about the action, about the decisions that result from the conversation. It's much easier to construct a conversation that feels good than one that actually gives you results because a conversation that feels good can be full of misdirection. So that would be a legitimation shift. And the third is what I call meta-settling. Meta-settling is where your expectations are not just lowered, but where you just give up on the political completely. So instead of saying, I'm only going to really get involved in politics if it's a big deal, because I don't expect very much from politics, uh, this is going even further and saying, I really expect nothing at all from politics. And unless it's threatening my survival in a very immediate way, I'm just not going to pay attention to it. Right? So this is a big, big kind of giving up. And I think we often see it in very low-income parts of the population, very poor, very alienated people who feel totally powerless. They are the most likely to meta-settle and to completely disengage, right? And if you've meta-settled, you wouldn't listen to a show like this. Listening to a show like this implies some reluctance to meta-settle. To really meta-settle is to just completely get out of it and go, who cares? I'm, I'm not even going to watch the news. I don't care what happens. Mm. And very often, historically, I think that meta-settling has come alongside religious or spiritual movements. I think it's also more recently come alongside uh, science and technology. A lot of meta-settlers are going into STEM fields and getting involved in Silicon Valley and in the world of social media as alternatives to political engagement. And of course, as those things start to have political implications, as social media, for instance, has political implications, they get dragged back into the political against their will. Mark Zuckerberg does not want to be involved in politics. He really doesn't. But he's dragged there because now his tech company has political implications. But the impulse to go into a STEM field is to kind of get away from very often political questions, in much the same way that the impulse to, get, uh, to go to a monastery is an attempt to retreat from 
political questions and avoid having to spend one's time and energy on them. Right now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's any kind of bedrock of trust. If you are meta settling, it's not necessarily because you think that the system's going to work. It's because you it well enough for you to be okay without being involved. Quite the opposite. The reason that you're meta settling is because you think it's so hopeless. It's all inevitably going to come apart. There's nothing you can do about it, and all you can really do is look after your own life. So the meta-settler is expecting the society to, if anything, collapse. Mm. And if you look at, say, St. Augustine, when he's writing about the sack of Rome, for Augustine, even if Rome collapses, it's no big deal because you can live a life that is in alignment with Christ. And that's what's really important, your salvation. And while a polity might be able to, if it's the right kind of polity, help people with salvation, the fall or the collapse of the polity is not itself a big problem because there is this alternative way of being okay. Through, in Augustine's case, Christ. In the case of Plotinus, a Neoplatonist philosopher from a slightly earlier period, but also late Roman Empire. In Plotinus's case, it, through philosophy, you could kind of return to the one from which we emanate, kind of through a, a sort of meditation, gain a kind of enlightenment, a little bit similar to Buddhism. That is also a kind of retreat from the political and a move into a kind of pure thought, pure contemplation. The reason that Plotinus and Augustine are doing this is not because they think that politics will go well enough that they'll be fine. It's that they have no trust in the political at all and are looking to private life as a sanctuary from it. Hmm. Not to say that someone like Augustine wouldn't welcome a state that was deeply committed to Christianity and willing to do what was necessary to help people live Christian lives. I think that was Augustine's ideal state. But for him, the Roman Empire was so clearly not living up to that. And it wasn't going to live up to that. The Roman Empire had failed and was fundamentally disappointing in some way. Similar thing now. A lot of people increasingly feel that our state just fundamentally is disappointing and are looking for other ways of finding meaning in life. Hmm. So that's kind of my brief, maybe not so brief, run through of all of that. Edmund, what do you think the most likely outcome of all of this, of, of our more recent legitimacy crisis is, if you're willing to indulge my framework here? <laughs> yeah, I think that it, it looked for a time that there was some possibility of solving, at least for a brief period of time, looked like making conditions meet expectations looked like it was something that could be done. And it's, of course, desirable that faced in a choice between solving and settling with the status quo or sinking, solving does look like the most naturally attractive option of those three. But 
it looks like at the moment that shifting has been quite powerful in moving people's expectations away from uh, what they previously were, moving us from output to input legitimacy. And I guess one of the things about input legitimacy is that it's very difficult to solve in that case. It's very difficult to give people exactly the kind of recognition they want, partly because there are layers and layers of this. Some people want some level of recognition by the state. Other people want very thick recognition, have their whole identity recognised by the state. Other people want thinner recognition. And in any case, it's very difficult to know what solving would really look like. Because the question is a question of voice, it's a question of communication, something that's very subjective and therefore difficult to externally see. So it's difficult to see how to resolve that kind of crisis. And in this way, I think that shifting has made solving progressively more difficult over time. Um, of course, shifting... Yeah, I think yeah. there's a, a class-based thing here a little bit. I mm. think that there's been a lot of meta-settling for poor people and for workers. Mm. And there's been a lot of legitimation shift for professionals. Yes. And I think a lot of people, it, it was easy to think that Bernie Sanders, for instance, was going to solve our current crisis of legitimacy through some set of economic reforms that would give people more stability post-2008. Mm. Uh, I think it was easy to think that but that movement, which was initially about a lot of outputs and about changing political institutions to facilitate the outputs, it was get Medicare for all, yeah. get infrastructure spending, get tuition-free college. And if there are political obstacles in the way in terms of campaign finance, in terms of the primary system, in terms of the Democratic Party, modify those institutions as needed to make room for that, for those policies. That was, I think, the kind of initial framing. And from there, it's now all become very discursive again and very much about who gets to talk mm. and very much about recognition and input. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. But of course, what we're not saying, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, is that recognition and input don't matter. Of course, they they matter a great deal. I guess it's the risk of going to one extreme that is a problem here, that when, when we rely exclusively on input legitimacy, when states rely just on input or try to pivot in that direction, it inevitably fails. Because we aren't just recognition, we aren't just desire, we, we do need both. Yeah, I think that we have a kind of legitimation trap. Uh, mm. That's a, a concept I like to use in my thesis that I kind of bring in near the end. That we have a set of legitimation criteria that we can't fulfill and that the state has tried to deal with that by shifting and by trying to move, to, to redefine the terms, to make them easier to deal with. But the problem is that this attempt to move from the very difficult to meet output stuff 
toward the easier to meet input stuff tends to produce a bit of a slippery slope for the state Hmm. where every time you move back to input, input becomes much more demanding. Hmm. Right. So if you're going to say that what I'm going to give you is more personal recognition or personal attention, Every time you do that, you have to find a way to give more than you, what you were previously giving. And mm. it's very difficult to make everyone feel seen at once. Yeah. And if you're going to say that I'm going to make you feel even more seen than before, and I think this is, by the way, mainly a story that's being told to the professionals. I think at this point, the workers have kind of been kicked out of being told stories. Mm. Yeah. Because I think most of them have meta settled and aren't engaged. Yeah. Um, but the, the professionals are constantly looking for more and more recognition, for more and more opportunity for input. At the same time, in practice, the state has given a lot of its power away to the international market economy. And so the state can't do very much that's very meaningful without attempting to re-democratize some of that power. Yeah. And so it has to give more and more increasingly meaningless input. There has to be more input, but that input is, is totally meaningless because of the, the market integration. Hmm. So it has to sell people on input which feels impotent. And that means that there's a kind of inflation going on here where the input becomes less valuable over time. Because mm. as soon as you give people this input, they start to catch on that the input doesn't actually enable them to change anything. And because people are not satisfied by input alone, they're satisfied by the prospect of how the input might enable them to get output. So when you yeah. give people more input, the reason that it's satisfying them is that they think that they're going to be able to get some output with that input. They are not satisfied by the input for its own sake. The input isn't intrinsically valuable to them, at least not to the degree. I mean, it has some intrinsic value, but not enough to be self-sustaining on its own. Yeah, yeah. And so because of that, as soon as you do this, you know, David Rudsman likes to talk about the value of expanding the franchise. When you expand mm-hmm. the franchise, then it's kind of a release valve. The groups of people who are dissatisfied can imagine that now that the, that the franchise has been expanded and more people can vote, maybe they'll be able to win, right? Yeah, yeah. After a few elections where you don't win, you start to catch on that the franchise expansion didn't enable you to win. Mm. So then you have to come up with something else. And the state has kind of run out of franchise expansions. David makes the argument that we should let six-year-olds vote. That's David's preferred franchise expansion. Mm. But we've kind of run out of franchise expansions. We've kind of run out of ways of giving people a feeling of maybe next time you can win. Yeah, yeah. But states are constantly trying to come up with these. I think the Labor Party, for instance, in Britain, when Ed Miliband changed the rules to give the members more control over the leadership. That was very much a, hey, now that we've done these democratizing reforms, maybe you'll feel more like the system is fair. It was still designed to be rigged in such a way that someone like a Jeremy Corbyn could never get the leadership. 
you still needed mm. enough MPs to okay a candidate that when Corbyn was put up for the leadership in Britain, he was kind of a straw man candidate. Mm. There were people who had backed him to be on the ballot who had backed him just so that he could get beaten, not because they wanted him. Mm. And having seen that if he's on the ballot, if someone like him is on the ballot, he could win. I don't expect there to be a lot of additional attempts to put people like that on the ballot for purely symbolic reasons. Yeah. In the same way, the Democratic primary system is designed to give you the appearance of having input while actually ensuring that people that are amenable to the party insiders tend to win. Mm. So it's a system that is designed to look fair and feel fair without being fair. And I think very often that's what input reforms do. They are designed to give the appearance of, of input fairness while protecting the outputs from being changed. And that's perpetually an illusion. It's always an obfuscation. Mm. And therefore, it has to be papered over again and again. It's like how we pave roads in the United States. We use very cheap asphalt, and every couple of years, uh, you have to do it again mm. because it, it gets in bad condition very fast. But it's always cheaper to use more cheap asphalt than it is to use something that would last longer. So every time you're making a decision about what to do, government is always inclined to use the cheap stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a kind of cheap asphalt legitimacy input, the, the input concessions. Yeah. Because they're coming by themselves and not in a package with output. Right, yeah. What we're not saying is that it, we should just have output because of course states can't just no, because then you run into the problem china has yeah where yeah. it's over dependent on output and so if there's any change in economic conditions it's immediately really going to struggle to legitimate itself yeah yeah uh, so output that the nice thing about output is that it enables you to make strong demands the weakness of output is that it it's too hard to legitimate with output because it's too easy to make further demands with output. Yeah, yeah. So you, as a state, you're reluctant to over-rely on output. But if you try to get away from it, eventually it catches up with you because yeah. input alone is not enough. Yeah. It's easy to get away with not doing much if you're leaning heavily on input. Yeah, yeah. And input on its own goes out of control at some point. At some point, the claims for recognition by the state become so extraordinarily utopian that they can't possibly be solved. And Yes, yeah. I think that's what's going on with the libertarians and the anarchists. Yeah, yeah. They want a level of input such that they never experience coercion. Yeah. And if you want a level of input that makes it such that you never experience coercion, that in practice means a state that can't really make decisions. And if you have a state that can't really make decisions, then it can't do anything about outputs at all. And so one of the things that's happening, it's not just that the state is giving power away to international markets. It's also dividing its power up among 
individuals and groups and subunits and kicking responsibility to individuals and groups and subunits. And in doing this, it's weakening its ability to make decisions internally as well as externally. Yeah, yeah. And all of that means that because the state can't do anything about output, it is even more dependent on continuing to play games with input. Yeah. And that means as it continues to play games with input, it will only further weaken its ability to deal with output. The more the state divides power to give everyone the feeling of being meaningfully involved, the less power there will be collectively Mm. and the less ability the state will have to make change. Even when you don't take into account the effects of international markets and capital flight and all of those other international constraints that especially smaller states face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In this way, is the case that the former solvers become a bit like shifters in that now that the legitimation criteria or the expectations that citizens have seem to be shifting from from output to input in order to solve through output, we would have to shift expectations back towards more of a balance between input and output. And so in this way, uh, the task for solving this legitimation crisis has just become even more enormous than it was before. Now, not only do we have to think about solving, but we also have to think about shifting expectations to a place where they can actually be solved. Well, and I think that part of the trouble is that we've let this go long enough that when we do try to shift expectations back toward output and get the state to care about output, by this point, the state's ability to do anything about output has atrophied so much yeah. that it's very likely that we'll all just get disappointed by its failure to do anything about output and that that will lead to another shift back to input and another intensification of the crisis. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened here. Bernie Sanders tried to bring back some output stuff. Bernie Sanders was saying, hey, this output stuff has been neglected. And then he failed to do it politically. And the result was a shift back toward input and a further intensification of resentment along the way. Mm. So what we now have is quite similar to the politics of, say, 2014, but it's more agonistic, more polarized and more resentful. And of course, that's not to blame Bernie Sanders exclusively for that. I think that that was something that was going on anyway, because we were neglecting people's material needs Mm. and outputs for a very long time. And that was what brought about someone like a Bernie Sanders to try to rectify that. Yeah. But because it didn't work, it has acted as an accelerant on the resentment. Mm. And that means that when you swing back toward input, you now have an even greater demand for localism and devolution and regionalism. Yeah. There's even less confidence in federal institutions. Yeah. And in a way, the problem goes even deeper, because not only for states to solve this legitimation crisis, would states have to uh, rebalance input with output, rebalance desire-based legitimacy with recognition-based legitimacy, but states would also have to change what legitimation means. They would have to shift the expectations about legitimation, because currently claims for recognition have become what we've described on previous episodes as as very thick claims, as claims that go beyond the political towards um, 
some more utopian hope about the state recognizing every part of everyone's self-image and wanting to see our self-image reflected by the state instead of uh, the alternative view of recognition, the more political view rather than the cultural view or the more the more ancient view rather than the liberal view would be that recognition, it's, it's the other way. It's not that recognition is about the state reflecting our self-image, but we as citizens partake in the unity of the state. And recognition means every citizen recognising every other citizen as a, a fellow member of this unity. And I get, having a shared political status, yeah, yeah. I, which is, of course, more limited than the state reflecting all of our felt values and tastes. Yeah. And I guess it's a cliche now to refer back to the civil rights movement, but it is important to note that the civil rights movement, the name of it was civil rights, the rights of citizens. And not only does that seem to be something that the state can meet more easily than very thick demands for recognition. But it's also something that that just seems to work. It doesn't seem to work. Well, it lends to make, itself yeah. very easily to outputs because yeah. when you're saying civil rights, it's that you, we are we demand to be recognized as citizens. And as citizens, we demand the right to these specific outputs, these specific goods, mm. right? When we talk about especially economic rights, an economic right involves recognition as a citizen, and it involves a claim on some public service or good. Yeah. So it gets you an input and an output at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so agonistic as contemporary legitimation stories where these things are put in opposition to each other. Hmm. Although there is one caveat to that story, and that's that the civil rights movement, though it did achieve quite a few of its stated aims, did not succeed in the long term in changing the economic picture and the economic impoverishment of the working class, including in particular African-Americans, has continued and in some senses exacerbated in recent decades. And I think it's telling that after the Voting Rights Act that Martin Luther King got even more involved in stuff like the Poor People's Campaign, trying to give economic gains, as well as civil rights, civil rights and class interests. Well, I suppose that... The thing is that for Martin Luther King, those were civil rights. Right, right. Economic rights were civil rights. Yeah, yeah. And in Franklin Roosevelt's Second Bill of Rights, the economic rights are positioned as civil rights. And that gives you something that you can potentially build off of. The trouble is that once you go to that level, once you start making those kinds of economic demands, there's much more reluctance to meet those demands. And you get a lot of mobilization to shift. So, of course, what happens in the 70s is that rich people begin mobilizing huge amounts of money to shift the conversation and to get us to change what we are imagining freedom to be, 
to change what we're imagining equality to be, to make these terms mean different things through a relentless propaganda campaign, through the media, through lobbying, through think tanks. Mm. Huge amounts of money were deployed in response to that to get us off this language of rights and to get us off this concept of citizenship and to turn these things into something else. And they did it both from the right by trying to leverage a neoliberal ideology, but also through divide and conquer tactics within the left to cause the left to bifurcate and become sectionalized Mm. by emphasizing other kinds of categories. Mm. Because that's an important thing, I think, especially at this point to remember is that so many universities get so much money from rich people and so many academic grants at this point come from the rich that a lot of work which is ostensibly left liberal rather than right liberal also has its financial support base in the oligarchy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess in in this way that that the unequal distribution of wealth can have negative effects on citizens' actual rights and the satisfaction of their rights. And I guess... As Jeffrey Winters says in, yeah. in the book Oligarchy, if you have material power, that power can be translated into other forms of power very quickly yeah. at a moment's notice. Yeah. And so... In general, when we try to move from input to output, when we try to get the conversation over to stuff, that's when this mobilization of money shows up in the discursive space. And so we thought all of these institutional rules, all this stuff we've done with inputs to give people the vote and to give people all of these input rights, we think that all of this is going to enable us to get the output. But the immense financial mobilization which occurs whenever we come close to talking about output kicks us back the other way. Mm. The only time that the rich really tolerated prolonged discussion of output was in the 30s and 40s when they were worried about communism. Mm. And concessions in the output domain were acceptable to prevent the rise of communism. Yeah. But without that existential threat of a different regime type, there was... Uh, there has more recently been no willingness to tolerate concessions that are that expensive. The impulse instead is to find some cheaper way of meeting the legitimation demands through affecting a kind of shift through the discourse. Hmm. And I guess the absence of strong civil society organizations like labor unions uh, or the weakness of such institutions nowadays means that there aren't many options um, for there to be some kind of challenge to states on these issues. And I get in the seventies, we found that even when those labor unions were as strong as they ever were, they paled in the face of organized oligarch money. Yeah. Yeah. When the oligarchs decided to spend money in the seventies, when they decided that enough was enough, they easily overcame the unions and swept them from the field. Mm. And now unions are mainly an institution left to academics, journalists, and others who are involved in telling the state's legitimation stories, and not to those who might 
make demands or offer more concrete resistance. Yeah, yeah. But of course, it- that leads to this kind of this deep resentment, I think, in a lot of people who are not talked to by the state anymore, are not spoken to anymore by the state, mm. except in a very manipulative and disingenuous way. Yeah. Of course, in order to organize people on some grounds um, other than simple input demand in order to organize people on output demands as well, it, it would be necessary to have some kind of civil society organizations or set of organizations to organize people and give the lumpen proletariat, as you put it, uh, for the uh, current situation in the US, uh, drawing on Fanor, we would need some kind of organizations to organize people to give them the exit option and the voice option. And without either, there is no means by which workers can talk past the bubble of the professionals or the rule by the oligarchs. And it will just be the case that the oligarchs continue to rule and professionals. Yeah, you need civil society organizations, but they don't seem to be enough. They weren't enough in the 70s. Yeah. Even with a quite high level of development compared to now, they weren't sufficient. Yeah, yeah. And it's very hard to imagine getting anywhere without them in terms of trying to get some of these output demands taken seriously and met. Yeah. And I guess. And so I think we are probably locked on a path where there's going to be a steady intensification of these input demands with the state struggling to meet them and in the process rendering itself more and more impotent Mm. until eventually it runs into some kind of problem it really can't solve, that it stripped itself of the capacity to solve. Yeah, yeah. Or some other kind of exogenous event that would lead to a renewed role for the state, like a war or something. Yeah. It isn't, a, isn't it a shame that that's where we're at? You know, it reminds me of, of course, of where a lot of theorists in the 19th century were at. A lot of theorists in the 19th century started to feel that unless there was some period of conflict, there was no means of displacing or rectifying what they found wrong with the order. Hmm. And then we had the world wars and the world wars gave rise to regime alternatives that put real pressure on the states that existed and a series of concessions flowed out of that. But the cost of that, of course, is fighting the world wars. And some of the alternatives were really terrible alternatives. Hmm. Hmm. And isn't it a shame that we struggle so much now, and I think this is not just us, but everybody who's thinking about this, to come up with any means by which our institutions would have enough internal dynamism to avoid those really difficult situations mm. that we're forced to, like Nietzsche did or, or like Heidegger did, imagine that only some kind of big, sharp conflict 
could produce anything new. Mm. Isn't that horrifying, given what we actually got in the 20, in the 20th century to get us out of that sclerosis? Yeah, yeah. And so much focus, I think, in terms of when people talk about, is it like the 30s? A lot of the focus has been on, well, our institutions were durable enough to survive the 30s without changing. We retained, say, democracy in Britain or democracy in the United States. Asa Muglin Robinson in, in Why Nations Fail, for them, the 30s are like that. They're a case of democratic success. Mm. And I go, well, A, the cost of that is just enormous. Yeah. There are a lot of states where you weren't able to retain democracy, where there was a collapse. And the war fighting and the death and the violence and the suffering was just abysmal and immense. Mm. And then... The other side of that is, shouldn't we have wanted our states not to be so static that they were unchanged, but mm. dynamic enough that they could change early enough to avoid all of that? Wouldn't we have preferred states that were more able to act in advance rather than only in response? Mm. And one of the weaknesses of democracy is David Runciman talks about in the confidence trap is that democracy only responds when it is already subject to some level of legitimation crisis. It's the threat of the government losing the election, the threat of the leader being removed in a leadership contest, the threat of there being a move away from a consensus to some kind of anti-establishment. These are the things which compel action. And so the action is always rushed. And it's always just whatever you need to survive. Hmm. And that leads democracy into traps. That leads states into traps where they can't legitimate themselves effectively, where they can't solve problems effectively, where their legitimation comes at the expense of their problem-solving capacity. Hmm. Yeah. As we become more and more dependent on legitimation criteria that's harder and harder to meet and less and less relevant to people's real needs, everything becomes about keeping it going. Everything becomes about keeping the legitimation going. And there's very little room for anything else apart from papering legitimation stories on top of legitimation stories. You know, I'm reminded by, I'm reminded here a little bit of the part where Plato talks about how slavery comes about in his ideal city. Uh, for Plato, slavery isn't there at the beginning of the ideal city, but it comes about as the city comes apart and degrades. And the degradation of the city is inevitable. It's always going to happen. Hmm. Because for Plato, anything that people make is not as good as the form of the good, which is not material. It's, it far surpasses being, as he says. Hmm. And there's a, a quote from Plato there 
They distribute the land and houses as private property, enslave and hold as serfs and servants those whom they previously guarded as free friends and providers of upkeep, and occupy themselves with war and with guarding against those whom they've enslaved. The telling of legitimation stories, especially under present circumstances, is very much a kind of way of guarding against those whom we've enslaved. Mm. Yeah. And as our society becomes more and more a means of maintaining an increasingly fragile set of legitimation stories, more and more of our life becomes about telling lies and participating in lies. Yeah. And for Plato, of course, one of the things that really characterized the good, if we can say that anything characterizes the good, um, because of course we have a very imperfect and fragile and fleeting conception of it, and only a god could have a more full conception of the good, is that, as Plotinus put it, the, the good is the one, the good is unity. And one of the sad things about the material world that Plato notes is that there is plenty of disunity. There's not just a separation between matter and form, between how things are and how things ought to be, between this disunited realm and the imagined or real united realm of the forms. Um, but it's also the case that there's lots of disunity in other senses. Uh, by nature, we are separate from each other. We don't know each other's thoughts. The only way of communicating is through speech, which, as Hobbes notes, is very imperfect, a very difficult way of uniting people together. And uh, in order to manage this separation, and, or these divisions drawn by this material world in which we live, Aristotle recommends that we always try to tread the golden mean. We've talked about this, of course, a lot on previous episodes. I think that one of the reasons why the golden mean is important is that because of disunity, it's very dangerous to lean into one side of any given contradiction, uh, to say, lean in just to exit or just to voice in Hirschman's dichotomy, or, or to lean in just to striving or just to settling in Gooden's dichotomy, or to lean, in, lean into output or input legitimacy. It's very dangerous to lean into one side of any given contradiction, because then we risk just exacerbating the disunity. And for Plato, the disunity is what is at the root of all the problems in this world. Because when we separate stuff, we risk pitting everything against everything else. When we separate the whole from the part, when we separate parts from each other, we risk just setting everything in a Hobbesian war of all against all. And I think that's the way in which to read Hobbes, to see disunity as the problem, as the fundamental contradiction here. Uh, and I, I think that one thing that might make solving today particularly difficult is that the system in which we live, we were chatting about this a bit before the podcast, the system in which we live celebrates these divisions. It celebrates disunity. And 
not only does liberalism celebrate disunity by celebrating the separateness of the private and the public spheres, celebrating the separateness of morality and politics, but also, and of course this is the reason liberalism does this, capitalism more broadly is a system that draws some fairly distinctive separations um, in Fraser and Jaige's book, uh, Capitalism and Conversation in Critical Theory, Nancy Fraser says that capitalism draws all these separations, not just the ones that Marx noted, not just class contradictions arising from a separation between politics and economics, between states and markets, where the disembedding of the market in Polanyi's sense produces a lot of instability and inequality, but, but also uh, separations between, as Fraser put it, between production and reproduction, between wage work and unwaged work that capitalism relies upon, as well as the division between nature and society, between what we take to be the human world and the natural world. All of these divisions that capitalism creates, as well as the divisions between states, the interstate system is a very important way in which um, oligarchs can move between states through capital flight. One of the things that gives the exit option for oligarchs so much power is that oligarchs can move from one state to another in a very economically integrated world with no world state. It's very easy to hop from one state to another and to disinvest from states that adopt policies that deviate from uh, neoliberalism. And so I guess that one of the difficulties we have today is that it's very difficult for us to see a way out of this crisis. And I think one reason is that um, we live in a system that isn't just like all human politics, which is always trying to manage these contradictions, these separations, which as embodied beings, we are always plagued with. But we also live in a system which has used disunity, has used state market separations to produce a lot of dynamism. But we're coming to a stage where these separations have gone out of control. And it, we've reached a stage where it's very difficult to find a golden mean because there are so many separations and so many different golden means to find. It, it really is trying to uh, fit through the eye of a needle. It is a very difficult task to find a golden mean um, in any ordinary circumstance. It's especially difficult to find golden mean where there are so many different divisions drawn by the system and where we, it's so extensive that we cease to identify with the state. We think that recognition is about culture or about the private sphere. And we, we forget the connectedness of human beings. We forget the connectedness of everyone within the state. And in this way, uh, crisis solving might be really difficult today. Uh, not just because crisis solving is always difficult, because politics is based on these elemental separations, which it tries to manage through some kind of golden mean, but also the sheer number um, and depth of the contradictions and separations we now face means that finding the golden mean is going to be a very difficult um, if not impossible task. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent thought, Edmund, and a good way for us to to wrap things up. Yeah, yeah. It, we, we do live in a world which 
celebrates antagonism now instead of looking to manage it. And liberalism, I think, came into being in part as a means of trying to manage religious conflict, as a means of trying to manage antagonism. Mm. Uh, Kant, for instance, thought that through reason we could come to consensus about categorical imperatives. Initially, the public-private distinction was a kind of way of getting of, of getting back to unity by going into the private and using the private to get, to work our, our way back to a political unity. Rawls' overlapping consensus mm. tries to move from individuals who are all very different from each other to a, a consensus on the constitutional essentials. I think that liberalism conceived of itself as a means of managing inevitable disunity. But what has happened over time is that liberalism has moved into celebrating disunity, mm. into exacerbating it rather than managing it. And... At this point, it can no longer sustain the contradictions that it continually fuels. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's a good way to finish. So, well, maybe not a good way, but a, an apt way. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that'll wrap us up for, for this week. Of course, you guys can follow us uh, if you'd like uh, to support the show on patreon.com slash political theory 101. And I think now that it's the summer, maybe it would be nice to do one of those first Q&A episodes that we promised patrons. So we will, mm. I think, probably do that pretty soon if, Edmund, that sounds good to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe we'll do one of those in the coming weeks. So I will send around a message to patrons canvassing them for questions and of course that episode that episode is patron exclusive but we will continue to do regular regular stuff mm. uh, no worries if if that's not up your alley but we've done a number of these and I think it, it would be a good time to let some listeners ask some questions mm. especially now as we come to the end of this particular three part series yeah. so we'll do some of that and We'll be back before too long. We're doing these every two or three weeks, it seems. Um, so have a good rest of your day, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.